Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. My name's Andy. I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection Church. We want to welcome you this morning. So glad you're here. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. I tried to take us a step back in the first service and go back into chapter 19. We're actually in chapter 20, so that's where we'll start. Not 19, we'll be in 20. Um, so turn there, chapter 20. We'll, I'll just start reading in verse 9. We'll be reading through verse 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked direct, directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, if you're a veteran in the U.S. Armed Forces or active service men, uh, uh, person, would you stand and let's, let's honor our veterans this morning. Would you stand? Uh, Ethan, Ira, anyone else? My dad? Yeah. Mitch, let's give them uh, some appreciation this morning. Amen. Yeah, I believe in giving honor where honor is due. Thank you for your service. Um, there, there are certain pressures, I think, that pastors feel, um, just like pressures that you feel in whatever your you know, field of uh, work is. One of those pressures is that I fight is to, to come to the pulpit on Sunday morning when I'm teaching and give you some very practical takeaways, action steps that you feel like, okay, I can come away from that text and I can do this and my life's going to be better. That, does, that, does that make sense? Like, like I, I feel that pressure to want to just give you this you know, little three points in a poem that you can just take home and go, oh, yeah, that was good. I can go do this, and, and, and everything's just going to be better. 
you know what I'm discovering about the Bible is that not every text ends that way. Not every text gives me this just little, nice, little, neat action step that I can take and, and apply as if it's just a, you know, a principle that would just make my life better. Sometimes the takeaway from a text is just to be in awe. Sometimes when you, especially when you journey through the Gospels, and Jesus is doing things and he's saying things and he's addressing people head on and in amazing ways, the right takeaway is just to go, wow, that's who he is. That's what he's like. And not that there aren't things that we learn from that, certainly. Because how many of you understand the Christian life is not just this series of uh, of steps that you take for moral improvement and behavior modification. We follow Jesus in a life like his, right? So when we see Jesus and we are in awe of him, there are takeaways to go, you know what? I, I can follow Jesus in that way, right? I, I can lean into that kind of life. But the primary thing I think we're going to see today from this text is just be in, be in awe. Oh, come, let us adore him, right? How great is our God. How great thou art. That's, that's the joy that we share as Christians is not how great we are, how great he is. Amen. And being in awe of him is the greatest joy possible. So we'll come back to that, but that's just a little kind of tidbit about where I think this text is going to take us. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. We know this is his final week. It's his passion week. This, is going to, this week is going to end with him dying on the cross. And it would be a gross understatement to say that he's come into Jerusalem and upset the apple cart. This is Passover. Passover is one of seven prescribed feasts that Jews had to participate in. Whether you were a native Jew or a convert to Judaism, you made the trek seven times a year to the holy city to participate in the feast. And this particular week is the feast of Passover, which I think is the granddaddy of them all. Right? It, this is a centuries old, deeply rooted tradition in the city of Jerusalem, revolving around the temple and the religious infrastructure, namely the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They see themselves as the gatekeepers of these great traditions, specifically Passover. And to say that Jesus has come in and disrupted that would be a gross understatement. There's, I think, a tangible sense in Jerusalem, in the temple right now, that though this is what we do every year, these are the traditions that we follow every year, we make this journey every year, Jesus' presence, not to mention his actions, throwing out the money changers, teaching about the kingdom of God every day in the temple, people are hanging on his every word, I think his very presence has created this sense that something different is happening. Something new is going on, and not everybody is happy about it. Let's back up to verse 2 of chapter 20. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they come to Jesus and say this, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, 
I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, Jesus is not being coy with them, and he's not dodging the question. We talked about this last week, okay? They, here's what Jesus is exposing. If they cannot acknowledge or recognize that John the Baptist's ministry was a God thing, they're never going to be able to acknowledge that Jesus' ministry and what he's doing specifically in the temple is also a God thing. Jesus is not interested in a fruitless back and forth with them about his authority if they are unwilling to acknowledge that what both John was up to and ergo what he's up to is something that Yahweh is up to. You with me? So they start to reason with themselves. He answers their question with a question. And here's how they consider that question. Verse 5, we, again, we looked at this last week, but this ties in. As they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, in other words, if John's ministry is from heaven, he's going to say back to us, well, why didn't you believe him? They didn't acknowledge John as being a God thing. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's what's clear from their reasoning. They are not interested really in considering Jesus or John's authority. What they're concerned about most is the preservation of their own authority in the eyes of the people. But here's what, as I looked at this again this week, here's what I noticed. They are acknowledging that there's some authority with this Jesus. Because they could have come to him and said, who do you think you are? Maybe that's implied but they could have come to him and said, look, you're not a scribe, you're not a Pharisee, you're not a priest. What business do you have coming up in here and doing this kind of thing? I think what they recognize is that Jesus does have authority. Jesus hasn't come out of nowhere. They know what he's been doing for the last three and a half years. They recognize the people are hanging on his every word. So what is certainly in play here is that this Jesus has authority and therefore, in their minds, he's a threat. And we gotta deal with this threat. We've gotta get rid of this threat. We've gotta eliminate this threat. And the sooner, the better. Here's what Jesus could have done. He could have looked at them and said, listen, you wanna know about my authority? I'm the second person of the Trinity. He could have said, look, I'm the word become flesh. He could have said, listen, you sorry rascals. I made everything, including you. He could have pulled out his God card. He could have flashed his God badge. But that's not what he does. And this is what I so love about Jesus and why I just, I feel this inclination to just step back and be in awe because that's not how our Lord does things. If I'm in his shoes, I probably do it that way. You know, I might have like done a magic trick or something. You want to know where my authority comes from? Watch this. It's not what he does. You know what he does? 
he turns to the crowd. The, the, the scribes and the elders are still there. But he turns to the crowd and he tells a story. He tells a parable. It's, a, it's an amazing, I don't know, amazing turn of events in this conversation because we know this about parables. Parables are made up stories that Jesus told to make a point. And we know about parables that we want to look for the simple, obvious point. We don't want to overread parables. Parables are often, probably one of the most misapplied and misunderstood portions of, script, of Scripture are parables. They're poetical literature, which means poetry is language under constraint. It's language that's pressed in order to paint a picture to provoke an emotion, an emotional response. And a lot of times that emotional response to a parable feels like this. Well, duh, but whoa. Does that make sense? Like you read the parable, you're going to go, oh yeah, that's the point, but wow. It's going to be provocative, and that's what Jesus does here. He tells a parable about a vineyard owner. This guy owns a vineyard, and he's going away on a long, long journey. And as he prepares to go away on this long journey, he rents out his vineyard to tenant farmers. We're familiar with that, right? That's a very common practice even to this day. My grandmother owns a bunch of land in the lower part of this state, and for years and years and years, portions of that land have been rented out to tenant farmers and they take a portion of the proceeds and she gets a portion of the proceeds as well. This is very, very common. This vineyard owner expects that these tenant farmers come harvest time are going to provide him with his share of the harvest and or the profits. You with me? So here's what he does. He sends a slave he sends a servant to collect his portion of the profits from these tenant farmers. Now, here's what you're going to find when you read parables also is that sometimes the details of parables are just grossly unreasonable. In this case, how many, ten, how many slaves or servants get sent to these tenant farmers? Three. Three servants, three slaves, and what happens every time? They beat them and send them away empty-handed. That's crazy. Because you know what I would have done after servant number one? I'd have got the authorities involved and had those sorry rascals thrown in jail. But that's why I'm saying you don't press the details of a parable too far. This is intended to be shocking. We should be going like, what in the world? These tenants are wicked. These are crazy guys that, what are they doing by this point? This is insane. And then, well, let me back up. One of the things you don't want to do with a parable either is allegorize it. But I'm going to point out a little bit of allegory. <laughs> Picture this, servant after servant after servant going to this vineyard to collect what is due the owner, and every time these servants get beaten and sent away. Israel has a long and storied history of beating, scourging, and dismissing God's messengers sent to her. 
Like, this is incredible what Jesus is telling. In fact, I read this last week, but let's read it again. Luke 13, 34. This is Jesus' first lament over Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Namely, in this context, John the Baptist, the voice of one what? Crying out in the wilderness, and they dismissed him. This is Israel's history, and here's the thing. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they know this. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 5. This is what they know. Isaiah chapter 5. Just a little plug, we're going to be in Isaiah for Advent this year. I'm super excited about it. We've got one more week in Luke, and then we begin the Advent season. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his, what? Vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Who's he talking about? Jerusalem. Look at the next verse. Oh, now, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of... Do they know what Jesus is talking about? Certainly they do, and here's what they also know, and they teach it in the synagogues. Not only is Israel God's, Yahweh's vineyard, but Israel, in her history, has been a wicked tenant. Do you see that? They know this. And so I think by this point in the parable, before Jesus includes the question in the story, it's already bubbling up. What's the vineyard owner going to do with wicked tenants in his vineyard? Look at verse 13, chapter 20. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Man, can you feel the tension? I don't know if you do or not. I do. I feel the tension in this story building. They know. They know where he's going with this. What's he going to do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Whoa. And the story gets worse. Instead of beating the son and sending him away empty-handed like they did with the servants, they decide what? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. When the tenants saw him, talking about the son, they said to him to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Tenants, the tenants don't want to be tenants anymore. 
The stewards don't want to be stewards anymore. They want to be owners. They want the vineyard for themselves. They want things on their terms, right? So this is why they say, let's kill him. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then the question comes, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What's the owner of the vineyard going to do to them? Now, here's what's interesting. Luke has told us that Jesus has been teaching in the temple how often? Every day. During this last week of his life in Jerusalem, he's teaching every day, and the people are hanging on his every word. So I think, though I can't prove it, I think he probably told this parable more than once. One of the reasons I think that is because if you go to Matthew's gospel and you read the same parable, the substance is the same, but the, rea- the account of the reaction is a little different. When Jesus gets to this point in the parable, the people in the crowd actually answer the question, what's the owner going to do? Let's, let's read what they say. Verse, 20, or verse 41 of Matthew 21. And they, in Matthew's gospel, talking about the crowd, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. The crowds go, get rid of those sorry rascals and kill them and let out the the vineyard to other tenants. In Luke's gospel, Jesus answers the question. Jesus says in verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So I think if you look at Matthew and you look at Luke and you read the parable and you look for the simple, obvious point, here's what I think it is. When a vineyard owner has wicked tenants, he's going to destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to other people. To which we go, well, right? But do you also feel the provocative nature of this? Israel has been a wicked tenant. And specifically, these scribes, elders, and chief priests who see themselves as the gatekeepers of the traditions of Israel and the traditions of the temple, they are wicked tenants, They have a long and storied history of killing the servants and sending them away. And now here's the sun. The sun has now come. Do you see? I don't want to allegorize it too much, but it's just like right there, isn't it? The sun is there, and we know this, they're going to kill the sun. It's not that they don't acknowledge Jesus' authority, that he has some. And whether or not they think they know where it comes from. They're not concerned with that. They're concerned with their own authority. They are wicked tenants. They don't want the son. They don't want what the vineyard owner wants. They want what they want. They want it on their terms. They're going to kill the son. And guess what? God's going to give the vineyard to other people. To which they respond, end of verse 16. When they heard this, They said, surely not. And that's kind of weak. Literally, it's, may it never be. 
And, and we need to ask the question, who's the they in verse 16? I think the they in verse 16 is the same they that's in verse 19. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they. Everybody say they. They perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They realized he's talking to us. He's telling us that we're wicked tenants and that God is going to judge us take the vineyard away from us, and he's going to give it to other people. And they say, may it never be. And I think the sentiment is scoffing. I don't think this is mourning or regret or maybe they're on the verge of some form of repentance. I think they're looking at Jesus and going, that's absurd. You have lost your mind. You are crazy. We want to kill you but they're afraid of the people. The weight of Jesus' words in the ears of the people is creating this sovereign, I love this, I absolutely love this, it's creating this sovereign hedge of protection around Jesus that's going to last until Friday. They're not going to touch him until the appointed time. This is probably Wednesday of Passion Week. So he's about 48 hours from the cross and they're going to spend the next 48 hours trying to trip him up, trying to get him to say something that's going to legitimize their plot to kill him in the eyes of the people. But here's what we know. They're not managing this. God is. And Jesus with absolute authority, the authority of the son, he is God, the son, he is the vineyard owner, and he's shown up right there in the middle of the temple and said, you're wicked tenants, and the vineyard's going to be taken from you, and it's going to be given to others. And I'm just in awe. You know, I, listen, I don't think the disciples are over there in the corner going, oh, Lord, he's going to take the vineyard from us. This is directed directly at the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And so I think, I imagine the disciples watching this and just being in absolute awe of Jesus as he executes the Father's will to perfection. There's a couple of things that I might point out that we could come away with some specific reasons to be in awe of Jesus. When they shout, may it never be, I think the sentiment is scoffing. You've lost your mind, Jesus. You're crazy. That is totally and utterly absurd. And I, and I don't know about you, but when I find myself in a position where somebody is disputing something I say and scoffing at them, and I know I'm right, I want to find a zinger to get them back. Y'all are so sanctified you never do that. But I, I find myself sometimes just wanting to go, I'm going to get... What does Jesus do? I'm in awe of this. Look at verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's he doing? He's quoting scripture. And the question is why? I don't think that Jesus, in moments like this, he went into the filing cabinet in his head and goes, all right, let me see if I can find a really good Bible verse to hit him with. We find the zinger verse. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread, throw yourself off the temple, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth. How did he respond? It is written. When he hangs on the cross, about 48 hours from this point, he's going to quote Psalm 22 and he's going to sing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, over and over and over again, throughout the days of his incarnation, would say, have you never read? It is written. Why is he doing that? Is he trying to impress people with his knowledge of the Bible? Is he trying to leverage scripture over people in order to put them in their place? No, we would never accuse Jesus of doing that. That's not who he is. And yet, sometimes I think that's how we are tempted to use the Bible. I think Jesus quotes scripture not because he's trying to just find a, a little verse that just fits so well right in the moment. I think his mind and his heart are so saturated with the word of God that it just bubbles up out of him in these moments. I don't think on the cross... He was searching the filing cabinet to find scriptures that could prove to people that he was fulfilling prophecy. I think he was quoting Psalm 22 because it was just his mind and his heart was so saturated with the word of God and he was so caught up even in his pain and suffering and torture, so caught up with the fact that he was doing his father's will that it just bubbled up and spilled out of him. My God, why have you forsaken me? In this case, what then is this that is written? If you think I've lost my mind, if you think I'm crazy, if you're unwilling to acknowledge my authority, if you're unwilling to realize that you are continuing the long and storied tradition of Israel and her religious gatekeepers being wicked tenants, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We know that. It's a quote from Psalm 118. That what immediately follows, let's read it again. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Some in awe, Jesus and his mind. Somebody asked me after the first service about this particular point. And they asked me, they said, well, Jesus is the word, right? Does the word become flesh? And absolutely that's true. I'll just take this opportunity to remind us all 
Jesus, during the days of his incarnation, is not leaning on or living from his divine nature. He did not set it aside. He did not cease to be God, but he lived as a man. He lived from his humanity dependent on the word and on the spirit. Right? He lived from his humanity dependent on the spirit, which again, if Jesus is depending on his divinity and he's just quoting scripture to send zingers, then we have no way to identify with his kind of life. He's living in moments like these and in his temptation in the wilderness from a place that we can't go because we're not divine. But in his humanity, he is saturated with the word of God and dependent on the spirit. And guess what? We can live that same kind of life. We can follow him. God, you are my God and I will follow you all of my days. We can follow Jesus in this kind of life. Here's the second thing I'm in awe of. He's doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. He's accomplishing for us what we can't accomplish for ourselves. Namely this. The vineyard that has been abused by wicked tenants is about to be taken from them and it's going to be given to others. And we are the others. Both Jew and Gentile alike. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Whether slave or free, whether male or female, we are going we are the new tenants of God's vineyard, which is not a geographical location anymore in a physical building. The kingdom. What has he been teaching? The kingdom. And, and I, want, I want to just read you this from 1 Peter because I think 1 Peter, in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter is talking about this. He's talking about this very thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, and that you there is all who believe, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What an amazing promise that is. I don't know if you felt shame for believing in this Jesus, for trusting in this Jesus, being in awe of this Jesus, being all in with this Jesus, maybe you felt shame. Maybe you've had people look at you and go, that's absurd. You're being built like living stones. I'm being built with you like living stones into a spiritual house where sacrifices will be made that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And all of us who believe 
are not going to be put to shame. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, why? Why do they stumble? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You weren't destined to disobey the word. You weren't destined to unbelief. You weren't destined to be to stumble over the the stone that the builders rejected, and be crushed by it in judgment. You were destined by God to believe and be built together as a spiritual house for him. And this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us and be glad in it. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You, I hope you are soaking in this right now. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So much of our Christian life is spent, I say our, I think, I don't think, I think res, I think we have, we've matured as a church. We've matured in the faith and in our knowledge and, and in the knowledge of the of grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ where we realize now that the joy of our Christianity, of our faith in Christ, is not in what we've accomplished. It is simply not that. And you know what? To be set free from that shackle is the greatest thing that could ever happen for you. That my joy in Christ is anchored to what I do, to what I've done. It's not that. Our joy is anchored to what he's accomplished. That we were once not a people. Now we're a people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We're a spiritual house that God is building and putting together so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you know what the call of this book is? It's not go and perform. It's go and live from that. Live out of that. Live on that foundation in joy and in awe. This is what Jesus has accomplished. Saturate your mind and your heart with these things. Soak in them. Trust the Holy Spirit to cause them to bubble up out of you. Not use the word of God as a, a zinger to put people in their place. Not use the word of God to just post devotional selfies. 
That was free. And no, saturate yourself with it. Be in awe of Jesus. Follow him. Proclaim his excellencies. Because he has done this. And he's done this for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. We're in awe of you. If you feel that, would you just take a moment and just express that to him? Express your awe. For you alone are worthy. For you alone are worthy. For you alone are worthy, Christ the Lord. One more time, lift your voices. For you alone are worthy. For you alone are worthy. For you alone are worthy. The Christ, the Lord. We praise you. We worship you. We exalt your name. We want to follow you. We want to live a life like yours. We want to follow in your footsteps and proclaim your excellencies. We want to celebrate with joy what you've accomplished that we could not accomplish for ourselves. And we want to be good stewards in the vineyard of your kingdom. So I ask that you continue to take us deeper, take us into deeper and richer places in your word of joy and gladness and awe and wonder that we might live from what you've done, that we might live on the foundation of what you've accomplished and that we might focus our lives on your glory for our joy. I pray that if there's one among us that has not recognized your glory and your authority that has not seen your glory and savored it, has not tasted and seen that the Lord is indeed good. I pray over those hearts that you would soften them, that you would, you would quicken them to life in you. And that, Lord, they might hear those amazing words from you today. Arise, come and follow me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.